If I could wave a magic wand and make one phrase from the English language disappear, it would be the phrase, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's Will Sampson. He's a social scientist and a change coach who works with mission-driven executives and entrepreneurs. But three years ago, Will had what he could only describe as a life crash, and it made him live very differently in the world. I think people who go through these significant bottom moments find that if they can reach within themselves and use the people around them, they're capable of incredible change. On this episode, we dive into Will's big crash, why it happened, the ways it reshaped his life, and how it formed his mission to disrupt the self-help industry. Welcome to The Breakout, a show about smashing through life's little boxes and forging your own path. I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. And I'm Kelly Gunther. Carrie and I are HR and talent specialists and best friends. We've spent more than 25 years helping organizations navigate change and get the best out of their people. Come on, we know change is hard, but staying the same can even be harder. On The Breakout, we prove that you can escape expectations, and best of all, we show you how. I try to bring the best of my coaching uh, experience and my experience as a trained researcher together, and I get to work with mission-driven entrepreneurs and executives who want to do well and want to do good. So the people I work with understand the need to do well in the world and to be resilient, but they also want to leave the world a better place. Will's story is rooted in the idea of giving back, but it took a significant transformation for him to realize that this was his main mission. To understand what got me to this place, you almost have to look at my life in two different ways. First of all, what I've expressed here is pretty much the grand narrative of my life. I've been looking for community. I've been building communities. I've been a part of trying to make the world better um, as long as I've been around. I can, I can tell you stories of like organizing neighborhood kids for a shut-in. She had a pet squirrel and I helped organize the kids who we gathered acorns and brought nuts to this, uh, to this neighbor. So it's something that I've been doing all along. You got to tell us, how old were you with squirrels? I just got to hear, like, I just sort of see a little Will gathering the, the neighborhood <laughs> kids. Absolutely. There was a dear woman who lived at the end of our street, and she was kind of the, one of the eccentrics of the neighborhood. She kept pet squirrels. And I remember my mom telling me that this individual was not well, and she was having to have people come in and care for her. And I was sitting around with friends, and I thought, well, who's caring for her squirrels, who's making sure her squirrels are, are, are cared for. I think I was six years old probably at the time, but early on I realized this was a way that you could care for people. And, you know, thankfully I grew up in a community where we recognized that we were all in it together. And so it was just an expression of my early mind of how I could maybe help heal the world just a little bit. But another key part of my story is that I'm a person in long-term recovery. And that's a really, really important part of my story because it's so easy to get caught up in these patterns of behavior and often, particularly for people in recovery, getting caught up in just some bad narratives, some false stories that we tell ourselves and we can't really break out. And I had the great 
grace and good fortune of having my life crash around me, which I know seems absurd to, to call that a good thing. But what I found in that was a group of people who said, let us love you until you can love yourself. Let us believe in you until you can believe in yourself. And out of that grace, I found the capacity both to rebuild my life and how to try to give back, to pay that forward, to, to take the grace that I've been given and invest it in other people. And that's what I get to do with entrepreneurs and executives and people in economic need through my nonprofit. So that's sort of an organizing force of my life. I can tell you're a caring person, but you said you didn't care about yourself and kind of what expectations did you have that you had to break in order to kind of start loving yourself as much as you love the squirrel and the neighbor? <laughs> yeah. Part of it is that we we learn these stories often from our trauma or from our experiences, mm -hmm. and we often overlearn them or we continue to tell ourselves those things even when it's no longer true. And so, I mean, the irony is as I sort of slipped into addictive behaviors, I was living in a community of people who loved me. I was married. I had kids who loved me. There was nothing that was actually true about the stories I was telling myself. But because we're so capable of deceiving ourselves, we often live in those narratives. One of the ways I describe it is, if you remember the old movie, horror movie meme, the caller is inside the house, you know, the landline rings and the person picks it up and the person, and they realize the villain that they're afraid of is on the upstairs extension back when we had landlines. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and for, for me, I just had a lot of false calls coming into my head and the way I chose to deal with it, which is, tied up in family history, tied up in a whole bunch of things. The way I chose to deal with it was to ignore it rather than confront it because mm. um, the more I isolated myself, not surprisingly, the more alone I felt. The more alone I felt, mm -hmm. the more I isolated myself and fell into addictive behaviors and so on. And so it wasn't really until there was a particular catastrophic moment that I realized I needed to find the strength within myself. I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl, and Frankl says that, he says, we find that when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. And I finally got to that point where I was really just challenged to change myself. Will is this kind and caring person with a loving family, and yet he was being so unkind to himself. You know, he said we are capable of deceiving ourselves and a lot of the false things coming into our head. It doesn't necessarily have to be an expectation placed on us by someone. It can be just the stuff in our head. And we just allow that to continue and fester and not deal with it. Mm -hmm. We're capable of telling ourselves these just incorrect stories. So you could have this loving family and it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're still telling yourself in your head these stories that are not true. It often takes something pretty dramatic to break out of a cycle like that. And for Will, that's exactly what happened. Like a lot of people with addictive behaviors, I had um, law enforcement who was more, more than happy to share with me the things that I was doing wrong. <laughs> I'm not trying to be a smart aleck or anything, but but I, I, love I just that. I ran into some legal troubles and and I had yeah. to uh, I had to pay some consequences. I had been 
driving under the influence. I was going to spend five weeks in jail. There was just no way around it. I had done it. I had hired the best attorney. There was no way around it. But because I had found this community of people that were willing to invest love and belief in me, on the day I was sentenced, I actually had 18 people in the courtroom. And I was the last person to get sentenced that day. And the judge was kind of looking out, trying to figure out why there were still all these people in her courtroom. And my attorney explained, well, they're here to support Mr. Sampson, Your Honor. And it was it was like a movie script at that point. And I, I would think I was making these lines up if I didn't have tons of witnesses. But she looked right at me and she said, you're very fortunate. Be sure to lean on those people when your time with us is done. And so, you know, a few weeks later, when I walked out of confinement, I had this group of people to lean on and to help me. And this was right at the start of COVID as well. So I had this, <laughs> suddenly I, I had this group of people to support me. You know, I, I, I didn't have a whole lot of other places to go. <laughs> so I was able to really work on, first of all, just absorbing the love and belief, because I think that's true for so many of us. We have a hard time believing in ourselves first. And then when we can internalize that love, then we get to the point where we can fully own our own story and our own actions and our own self-care. But often we are broken, and this was certainly true for me, we're broken in a way that we can't really access the love that's available to us. So that's sort of a long way to answer your question, which is I did two things. I, I let myself be loved, and then I let myself love myself. I learned how to love myself. It was that combination of letting myself see the love around me and then beginning to tell myself the truth and beginning to tell myself loving stories. So many people, as you well know, and we can look around, don't love themselves first. And to quote RuPaul, if you can't love yourself, how the heck are you going to love someone else? <laughs> um, give us the, the ending of like, what has changed for you? The short answer is kind of everything. And I, and I think people who go through these significant bottom moments find that if they can reach within themselves and use the people around them, they're capable of incredible change. And so my mind, my body, my spirit have all gone through massive transformations over the last three and a half years. But what I would say more than anything is what has changed is the way I see life and the people around me. So rather than seeing life as a challenge or a, uh, you know, this slog, rather than seeing myself, what was it, Sisyphus, was he the Greek god who kept pushing mm. the rock up the yes, hill? Yes, the rock up <laughs> the hill. <Yep. laughs> exactly. Yeah. So rather than seeing myself as Sisyphus, I now see myself as, I, I, my life is like a party. I'm surrounded by people who love me. I'm surrounded by people that I get to do fun things with. There's the quote on my board right in front of me says, are we having fun today? I mean, I, I literally, I have changed my perspective on life. And that's more than just being positive or kind of talking yourself into something. There's incredible research behind it. There's a researcher at Cambridge, her name is Simone Shaw, and they did this really interesting experiment where they interviewed people and they asked them about their level of social support. Like, how, so, how supported do you feel in the world? And then they showed them a hill, which is about as concrete and objective as you can get. Like a hill is as steep as it is. But based on how supported the individuals felt, they saw the hill as either less steep or more steep. So if they felt like they had people that were going to help them climb the hill, they said, oh, that's not too bad. I can do that. 
And so what's changed for me is I just bask in the support of the people around me because I am blessed to be surrounded by an amazing team. I call it my life team. I'm blessed to be surrounded by an amazing team of people who invest in my life because I invest in theirs. So I get to I get to kind of move through life as part of a community, not as this individual trying to find meaning in the world. How did you change that mindset? And it's not like you said, just saying, I'm going to be positive today. For me, it starts in the head. Obviously, we, we have to understand we want to change something. Just the very word itself, mindset, means that we conceive of something we want to change. But it's often true, and this is true certainly with the clients that I coach as well, that we, we often go from mindset to habits. And there's actually a problem with that. The research says that we tend to stick with the habits that resonate with who we are. So I'll give you a specific example of this. The Journal of Sports Science, they looked at people who described themselves as athletes and they recognized that they are more likely to go to the gym, work out harder. They take advantage of their health in all the other areas of their life because they have taken on the identity of an athlete. And so for me, it went from my head really to my heart. And I began to take on the identity of a person who grows. I took on the identity of actually athlete was a really important one for me. So when I was trying to put my body back together after uh, too many years of not you know, good care. I said, I'm an, I'm an athlete. I have the fit muscular body of an athlete. I told myself that every morning and I, I do more now than I used to at least. And then I moved into the creation of a, of a set of habits. Even there, it was important to realize that it was a little bit of time. So as we entered the pandemic and everything sort of fell apart, part of what I was doing was just holding on. And I was helping to organize online meetings for people in recovery. I've moved my coaching practice from in-person to online. And about a year into the pandemic, I, I realized, you know, I was, I was kind of beating myself up one day and telling myself stories that I would never say to anybody else, like telling myself, oh, you're horrible. You don't stick with things, blah, 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 blah. And I said, that's not true, actually. I've been doing this service position in the recovery community for a year now. I've been helping coach clients. So that's not true. So what could be true for you? Well, I can go to the gym you know, once a week. So I started once a week. And over time, over the last two years, I built a, a steady growth of habit stack where I now have a, a series of habits that kind of hold together. But again, not because I went from my head to my gut, not because I went from thinking about something to the habit, but because I went from thinking about something to changing my identity to then taking on habits that match that identity. That's such an interesting point because you're right. Most of us go from, okay, I got to lose weight and therefore I'm just going to do five, five exercises a week or athlete. This is what an athlete would do. What well, was one of the hardest things to get past while you were doing this? Why was it difficult and how did you get past it? Yeah, probably the hardest thing to get through was changing the way I presented myself in the world from a sort of a career and a finance perspective. You know, I, I described myself before all this as successful-ish. <laughs> like I was, I was an executive at a, at a large contracting firm. I had an earned PhD. I mean, pretty, you know, I, I had some things I could point to, 
But I had also relied very heavily on either working for a larger organization or a lot of my work was contracted through some something else. So I didn't have to actually be vulnerable and present myself to clients and ask for sales, frankly, which was really hard for me. So that's probably the biggest thing that I had to work through. Believing in myself well enough that I could present my services to, to someone and say, this is how I do it, this is what I charge, and I think I'm worth it. That's been an interesting part of the journey for me. I've heard it from many people who go out on their own too, is that charging the money, I'm worth it. I have a PhD, I have the expertise, and yeah, you should pay me that. That's what I'm worth. And that's a really difficult, hard one to get past. It's easier to maybe do 100 squats than <laughs> ask right. for your value. <laughs> While it certainly was not easy, the shift in Will's perspective was enormous. The new thing for me is that intermediate step from mindset to habit, you have to figure out your identity. So for him to say, no, I am an athlete. And then I realized that's what Kel and I do. We did act like we're a big company. We don't ever think we're just the two of us. We go, no, we're a company, we outsource things. I can see why if you have the identity, then the habits are easier as well. Once Will started telling himself a different story, everything changed. And he also began to focus on the crucial part of his transformation, the idea of interdependence. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that interdependence. Why is it so key to thriving? There's at least two answers to that question. The first one is it reflects our ability to accept what is, to accept reality. Here's the reality. From the time you woke up till the time you went to sleep, and even in the hours you were in, asleep in bed, you were dependent on other people. They kept your lights on. They kept the power going. When you put gas in your car, a dozen people played some part in getting that gas to the gas station and, and helping you be able to purchase it. Stephen Covey, if you remember Covey from Seven Habits, he said that trying to go through life independently is like trying to play tennis with a golf club. The tool is not suited to the task. And so one of the main reasons I focus on interdependence is that it's just a better reflection of reality. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of successful people. Obviously, I work with some very successful people. And what I find interesting is that often you'll hear this entrepreneur and that entrepreneur will talk about their success. And I can always kind of hear it like you're waiting because sooner or later you're going to hear the story of that person that helped them succeed or those people that helped them succeed. The best example I always tell is of Richard Branson. We think of Branson as this amazing self-made billionaire, and he is a billionaire. It's also true that when Richard Branson was 23, he went bankrupt and his mom was there to mortgage her home, keep this tiny little record store in East London afloat so that he could go on to be the Richard Branson that we know today. And so, you know, one of the reasons I, I talk a lot about interdependence is that it, it really helps reacquaint us with the reality of the world. We live in a network of mutual dependence with the people around us. But the other reason is that I, it, it really helps, particularly for my coaching clients and then also for me and how I show up in the world, it helps me realize that 
I don't have to do this alone. Can you imagine the CEO of a major corporation um, filing the tax forms Mm -hmm. or (laughs) filling out the HR policy or something, right? You'd say, well, that's crazy. And yet when we become CEO of our own life, we think we have to do everything. And that's crazy. That's just nuts. And so the other reason I focus on interdependence with my work with clients is it really helps them understand that they don't have to be good at everything. If you can be good at more than one thing, you're exceptional. And then around us, we we have these life teams. We have these groups of people who are willing to help us to really create the life that we desire, create the outcome that we desire, and hopefully leave a better world behind. I was just thinking when you were talking, Will, of how many times we say he's a self-made billionaire, self-made millionaire, and you're you're not a self-made. You just didn't do it in a vacuum. And you talk about that you want to disrupt the self-help industry. What needs disrupting with that? What's your mission to disrupt it? If I could wave a magic wand and make one phrase from the English language disappear, it would be the phrase, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's interesting, if you look at the history of that phrase, it was meant as a joke. (laughs) The, The original time it was used, it was in the 19th century, and they were talking about this individual who had created what he believed was a perpetual motion machine, or what we might call cold fusion today. And the newspaper editorial said, well, maybe this guy can pull himself up by his own bootstraps. Like it was meant to be a joke. And yet it's become like settled science today that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Now, I'm, I am obviously a sold out fan of personal growth. And I believe that our own world changes when we take responsibility for everything that is within us, when we take responsibility for our own life. So the problem is that The self-help industry is a spectrum. And so on the one end are these amazing books, books like Flow by Mihai Chinfat Mihai or Mindset by Carol Dweck. I mean, there's these amazing books in the sort of personal growth space. But on the other end of the space are often simplistic answers that cause individuals to believe that if they don't succeed and if they're not able to take advantage of the information in that book, that something's wrong with them. And so I just imagine a world where we live in the, in the sort of dance between owning our own future, becoming fully the author of our own narrative, but we recognize that we're always doing that in relationship with each other. And we spend a lot of money on self-help in this world. We spent about $13 billion last year in self-help. And yet we see these social indicators like poverty and income inequality and disease and uh, what um, we call deaths of despair. So deaths from overdose, suicide and alcoholic liver disease. We see all these indicators growing. And so clearly there's some disconnect. And I think the disconnect is this belief that you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, this belief that you can succeed alone. And that's what I really want to strike at. That is an entirely other podcast that we can have, part two with Will, uh, to talk about that. Personal growth is so much, it's a better moniker for it. Self-help does feel like I have to do it myself. I pull up by my bootstraps and if I didn't do it, then I'm a loser. I couldn't help myself. Since you're a change expert, what do you know to be true about change? I know a lot of things, but I would say that the first thing that comes to mind is Aristotle's quote that we are what we repeatedly do. He says, excellence then is not an act, it's a habit. 
one of the most important things I, I communicate to my clients is that while it's often true that we can make quantum leaps or big leaps, it's mostly true that we are the result of a series of choices that we make every day throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout the month and throughout the year. And so it's helpful in January as we're all still probably reflecting on 2022 and thinking about the year that came before us to just reflect back and realize that we really are a series of choices. We are what we repeatedly do. You know, in, in coaching, we recognize that the, there's incredible power in the conversation and there's incredible power in the question. What a good coach does and what I hopefully am able to do with my clients is ask good questions. But there, there is no <laughs> magic formula. There's no secret bullet. Usually what brings about meaningful and impactful change is to be committed to a series of small steps throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month and the year that over time lead us to a different outcome. I remember when I first started in corporate, I said something like that, and I had to write these reports every month in my program that I was in. I was in a management program. And I wrote, we get to from point A to point B, not in just one leap, but all these series of decisions and small steps. My last question before we turn it over to Kelly, you have one minute with someone who is stuck and wants to kind of break out. What do you tell them? in one minute? I love and hate this question at the same time. But in one minute, and probably the most important question I could ask, and the most important realization I can bring to people is, and it builds on what you just said, is, is the question, how is the current model or the current path working out for you? Because we often see ourselves when we get stuck, and uh, stuckness is a term that I use a lot in my coaching, because we often see ourselves as unable to change the trajectory. But that's true only if we recognize we're on a trajectory. And that's, I think that's the great myth is we often don't realize we're in an arc of behavior. We're in an arc of activity, arc of action. And until we interrupt that, nothing changes. Mm. Thanks, Will, for sharing your story with us. I think one of the things that resonates with me is, you know, when we hear from people who have gone through an area in recovery, one of the most beautiful things is how vulnerable folks who have who are in recovery are. And it just lends itself to your story being so compelling, but also how you're willing to really go above and beyond to help others understand not only your story, but their story. And so I wonder, is there anything you wish you'd known earlier? Yes. <laughs> Can we take the next three hours? <laughs> right, exactly. But you actually touched on the thing that I wish I'd known earlier, which is the incredible power of vulnerability. I don't think it's true just for men, but it's certainly true in this culture that we live in where we think of vulnerability as weakness. But then we see it modeled and we 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 love it. We often identify it with it. We're, we're almost attracted to it. And so I think probably if there's one thing that I wish I'd known earlier, it was that I don't need to be a superhero um, and that there is incredible power in vulnerability and being open. Mm. I will always think of you as someone who wants to do well and wants to do good and really empowering individuals to see something within themselves that they maybe don't see yet. But with continued conversation and dialogue and with that 
continued support, just as you had, they will eventually see it. And so I'm so inspired and grateful. Thank you for sharing and being so vulnerable with us. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Will. It was beautiful. Thank you. This was a great pleasure. That was Will Sampson, change coach and self-help disruptor. And this is The Breakout. If this episode inspired you or made you think, give us a five-star rating and spread the word. It helps us reach more people who just might need these stories. And don't forget to subscribe to The Breakout so you never miss a new episode. I'm Kelly Gunther. And I'm Dr. Carrie Ulrich. See you next time.